See if there's any bullshit yeah. that we can sense. And the story that we want to talk about uh, today is what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. I, I, I don't know if this is getting any news coverage uh, in the United States, Ray. Uh, uh, hard to tell. Right. But uh, certainly in Australia, uh, every yeah. day, there's there's something about how the world's about to end um, because of Russia yes. and Ukraine. You're getting that the over latest there? Two- yeah, the latest two things is one, it could happen any moment now. Two, it'll probably take a total of two or three days before Yugoslavia is subdued. So we are being Yugoslavia. told it's imminent. Really? Yugoslavia Yugos- now? Uh, I'm sorry, not Yugoslavia. I was studying. I'm sorry, ladies NATO. and gentlemen. He's been eating gummies uh, before we went on air. And the I think trick- they just kicked in. You got to yeah. time them. <laughs> got to time them better, it's my friend. It's all about. It's all about it's all about timing. And eat yeah, something. Me, yeah. Oh no, don't. You, 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 oh, you look like you've eaten oh. too much. Don't eat. Yeah, don't eat so much. Maybe. And anyway, no. But but here's what here's what gets me. So so it's it's going to happen any day. It'll be over in a matter of days. There's practically nothing we can do about it. But at the same time, we should be completely panicky. But here's the part that is all oh, that's bullshit. But here's the part that's real. In the last uh, in the last two days. I've seen more military planes over my house than I have in the last two years. I live in the middle of nowhere. And what it is, is the uh, they get permission over places that don't have a lot of population. It's mostly cows and trees uh, and pig fuckers. But um, I have seen four jets chase each other and a ginormous transport plane barely, and I do mean barely, uh, cu- almost touching the treetops. They were flying that low. And as you can imagine, a machine like that makes a lot of noise. So in the last two days, I've seen planes going over. And like I said, it happens. They're looking for you, though. Let's be clear on that. (laughs) The real Unabomber. (laughs) You know what? Actually, they they did arrest me. They brought me in for questioning. And very quickly, Mm -hmm. they figured out, no, this is not our guy. He can't put anything he's together. Not a mastermind. No, he's, no. Not a, he's not a master at anything except for masturbator. Yeah. And he's not a threat except yeah. for the, his penis. No, no, no. But no, seriously, the, uh, the, the pickup of military practice or whatever the word I should, you know, should be using is up at least in this area significantly. So that, it, you know, who knows who in the hell knows what's going on. But, but basically to answer your question, we are being basically told to panic. This is yeah. our responsibility. We were the same yeah. world. It's going to happen any day now. And what are we going to do about it? Yeah. 
So th- this is uh, the latest in a series of stories going back decades, honestly, since literally since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. There's always been some kind of beef between Russia and Ukraine since the early 90s. Uh, the question is why. And if you read the mainstream yeah. media at the moment, it's all Putin's fault. Um, here's, oh, absolutely. Here's uh, the opening from a New York Times article on the situation uh, that I read on February 8th. President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia is increasingly staking his legacy on reversing Ukraine's pro-Western shift. Even if he does not order an invasion this winter, he is making clear that he will keep the pressure on, backed by the threat of force for as long as it takes to get his way. And that's that's kind of the, the standard framing of the story across the media. And, and if you look at how that's framed, he's about to order an invasion, sounds scary, right? or use right. the threat of force to get his way, okay? Very scary, yeah. bad, bad man, um, mm-hmm. who's uh, uh, doing all of this. But you have to scroll quite a long way down the article <laughs> right. uh, to find this bit. The mm-hmm. West just doesn't understand how much this is a question of life or death for us, said Mr. Pukov, who runs the right. Centre for Analysis of Strategies and Technologies, a privately owned think tank in Moscow. Ukraine in NATO, from my point of view, or Russia's, would be the equivalent of nuclear war. Uh, I was going to ask you, has the, has the term World War III been used in print or in whatever media? Because I've, I've seen it a few times, but it's mostly, you know, just to grab your attention. Yeah, I, I haven't seen a lot of that, but uh, yeah. people are pointing out that it's going to be a big deal. So who right. or what is the driver of the current conflict? Is it Putin wanting to get his way or the US and NATO wanting to get their way? Which came first, right. chicken or the egg? Uh, <laughs> well, no, we've we've talked a bit yeah. on this show in the past, um, I think, about the one-inch promise. Yes. Um, What we're going to do over the next couple of episodes is rather than talk about what's going on right now, quite frankly, there's just a ton of speculation. You know, the high level is Russia says we're not going to invade. The Ukraine says Russia's not going to invade. Everyone else says Russia's about to invade any minute. Um, I don't know if you saw that great clip. I think it was uh, somebody from the State Department who uh, in the last week or so was giving a press conference talking about how they had evidence that Russia was going to come up with some sort mm-hmm. of false flag in order to justify an invasion. Matt Lee from Associated right. Press was in the press room and he said, well, what's the evidence? And the guy said, well, I just told you that they're going to do it. He goes, no, well, that's not evidence. That's, that's you <laughs> telling me that's words. that they're going yeah. to do it. What's the actual evidence? He goes, the, the State Department guy was like, I'm, I, I don't understand. I just told you that they're going to do it. Goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't, you know, that's not evidence. You telling me something is going to happen is not that's evidence. That's not proof. Yeah, yeah. where's the yeah. proof? Where's the evidence? He yeah. goes, well, if you don't believe the U.S. government, he goes, well, hold on, I didn't Stinker. believe the U.S. I believe the U.S. government when you told me Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, when you told me the, the Taliban wasn't going to take over Afghanistan five minutes after our planes left. Uh, right. No, I don't Fool trust your once. intelligence, so where's yeah. the proof? Yeah. It was great to see a journalist finally standing up 
to these guys uh, and yeah. asking the basic question, not the hard yeah. question, the basic question, what's the evidence? Why should we believe we your war. intelligence? Yeah. Oh, I just sent you, right before we got on, I sent you a TikTok from Bernie Sanders who's basically saying he's towing the line. This is horrible. It's all Putin's fault. We can't trust him. He's aggressive. He's He'll, he'll take whatever, you know, just the whole, you know, because you've said this a billion times and, and other people have said it as well. There is no left-leaning party in America. Totally get that. The only hope is we have like Bernie and AOC, but now Bernie's like, nope, nope, it's all Putin. He's the bad guy. Everything that's going on now is his fault. That's Bernie's line because he's towing the line with everyone else. That's disappointing. Yes, exactly. According to Richard Sakwa, who is Mm -hmm. the professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent and the author of many good books about Russia over the years, Right. He said, uh, this is going back uh, a while ago, right? He said, but for Mikhail Gorbachev, now for the young kids mm-hmm. out there, he was the last leader of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. Right. The end of the Cold War represented a moment when Moscow could work with the Western powers to create a new political community as equal founding members. This yeah. was known Do as over. the greater Europe idea, still something right. that Vladimir Putin is pushing. Basically, mm-hmm. when when they um, broke up the Soviet Union, the idea was that Russia would yeah. uh, be an equal partner with the rest of Europe and the United States, and there'd be a new global uh, diplomatic order where they would all be treated as equals. Right. Right. Um, Sakwa goes on, the historical West with NATO and the European Union at its core would in the Russian idea, become a greater West with Russia, a founding member of a new political community. This was mm-hmm. accompanied by various Gaullist ideas to establish some sort of pan-continental greater Europe stretching from Lisbon to Vladivostok. Right. Um, Gaullist ideas, I think, referring to de Gaulle, the uh, leader of the French uh, in uh, after World War II, who uh, withdrew French forces from NATO. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. and so forced the removal of Allied bases in France and initiated France's mm-hmm. own independent nuclear deterrent program. Um, yeah, basically, his view was that France would not be subordinate to other nations. Yeah, it's kind right. of a little bit uh, of the Brexit idea. Look, we don't want to be part of this. We want to do our own thing, go our own way. We'll have alliances, mm-hmm. but we'll be independent. Um, Sakwa continues, but the Atlantic powers, fearing that Russia was trying to drive a wedge between its two wings in Europe and America, rejected Mm -hmm. these ideas. Instead, the end of the Cold War reinforced one side at the expense of the other and without a transformation of world order. This means that in structural terms, the Cold War never really ended, something you and I have been saying on our Cold War show for the last five years. Yeah. Russia could have become part of the Mm -hmm. winning constellation, as Germany and Japan did after 1945, but that would have required some sort of admission of defeat, and that is something that no Russian leader, certainly not Yeltsin nor Putin, were ready to concede. Instead, the institutions and ideas triumphant at the end of the Cold War enlarged, driving Russia into a strategic impasse. Without the Soviet Union to act as a constraining force, the world order established after 1989 turned out to be effectively unipolar, 
with all of the dangers that attend such a situation. Neither Russia nor China is in a position, nor do they desire, to balance against the dominance of the American-led power system. What they do want is a more pluralist international order rather than a single dominant power system. They wish to see the institutions of international society, notably the UN, the WTO, and international financial institutions work autonomously and impartially. Russian politicians repeatedly talk of the need to establish a more multipolar system. Instead, Russia was subjected to various forms of soft containment, which has hardened over time. The crisis over Ukraine in 2014 was a symptom and not the cause of the breakdown in European security. Yeah. I I don't I'm not going to go too far because I'm sure you've got a lot of notes but I find it fascinating so 1991 1992 the the Berlin Wall comes down you know Germany's going to be reunited we won the cold war I mean decades of time um billions if not trillions of dollars we are are the ultimate goal of the United States since what roughly 1945 comes true and Russia, you know, the Soviet Union disintegrates. And now it's time for the little, the countries to break up. What's going to happen now. America's at a very important crossroads. We could either find a way to be very clever and embrace Russia and bring it into the fold. And and he's absolutely right. It would make this new entity so powerful and, and it would reduce tensions and it would bring about a lot of peace and we could just bring them in and just forget the last what whatever 50 70 years whatever it is i don't do math um but no we we don't do that because of the attitude or the mentality that we have uh by 1989 that was you know started by truman and stuff like that and so we had we had one or two options and we didn't take the best one russia learns from this and they're like okay all right, we can't trust you. So now I've got to act in my best interest because clearly you are not willing to work with me and that's how you avoid wars. Yeah, so I'm going to drill down into um, a lot of the story about how that happened. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure a lot of Americans and, and probably other people in the West listening to you say that Russia feels it can't trust the West would irk at that because they feel, because right. they've been told that it's the opposite is true, that the West can't yeah. trust Russia. And there's truth both ways on both sides, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The, the relationship is uh, not one built on trust. But we're going we're yeah, gonna, to trust. We're going to drill down and have a look at why that is. You know, a lot of it reminds me, uh, obviously, of uh, what happened after the Yalta conference. Um, right. There was, yeah, a lot of it comes down to, as we'll see, the difference between the spirit of an agreement and right. what ended up on paper and, yeah. you know, which side is saying, well, fuck you, it wasn't on the paper, so it doesn't matter, versus the side that's saying, yes, but we we basically had a handshake deal and you fucked so, us. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. And speaking speaking of that, before you go on, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago the one-inch deal, which I'm sure you're going to go into, but after Cam gives that uh, explanation, and it By is way, a brilliant it's not yes, a it's yes. not a discussion about your penis. I just want to be clear about that well, from the it's outset. funny you should say that because it turns out that you're wrong. Um once you talk about that, if if it's needed uh mm. for some certain people, I will give a physical representation. You'll have to work on it for a while to get it to one inch. But well, uh, where, where do you think my right hand's at right now? But the point is sometimes I think pictures, you know, a thousand <laughs> words. So anyway, so get ready. Just get ready. I'm done now. 
I'm done now. <laughs> so, so sorry, ladies. Let's start yeah. with a little bit of history. Um, yeah. Uh, so Mikhail Gorbachev um, tried to reform the Soviet Union. Um, I, I did an episode with a, the great British scholar, uh, Professor Brown, um, and a year ago when his book on Gorbachev and Thatcher and Reagan came out. Um, mm-hmm. And where we talked a lot about this in detail, uh, if people want to uh, check that out, go to our Cold War show and, and look for that interview. Um, but Gorbachev didn't want to see the Soviet Union broken up. This is a, a key point. It, you right. know, he wanted to create more transparency. He wanted to create more freedoms. He wanted to see some democracy. He um, he knew that the system that they had inherited uh, was uh, not working. Flawed. Yeah, yeah. terribly yeah. flawed on a whole bunch of levels. Whether or not it started off with the right intentions, it, it had been corrupted. It was uh, uh, it was morally and economically uh, broken. Yes. And so he he wanted to reform it and make it better. Yeah. And if I could just add on to that real quick, Brezhnev, who was in charge from 64 to 82, his time was known as the Great Stagnation because he really didn't bring any new programs or he wasn't trying to be progressive in any way. He wasn't trying to be more dynamic with their economic policies. And so there's just a an economic and like you were saying, uh, there's a lot of corruption, stagnation going on. So by the time Gorbachev is coming around, he's like, we've, we've got to turn this ship around because it's getting to the point. And uh, no, I won't give that away yet. But the point is, America, specifically Reagan, sees the weakness of the Soviet Union, and he does what he can to make it even further weaker. So the point is, Gorbachev is like, I've got to find some way to turn this around because economically, we are about to go into the ground, and if there's no money, then everything else falls apart. So he's he's got a mission that he that he wants to accomplish, and he was looking at some of the more moderate uh, socialist countries in Scandinavia mm-hmm. and Europe, and going, okay, well let's. Let's do that because that seems to work. And and I think, too, uh, particularly by the late 80s and early 90s, was looking at what um, Dong Xiaoping had been able to accomplish in China in the previous 10 years when they had, uh, you know, he he had uh, decided that it it. doesn't matter what colour your cat is as long as it (laughs) gives milk. (laughs) I'm not sure that's the exact quote, but... (laughs) Close. Yeah. Very close. Something about a milk and cats. Uh, the, tr- the trick is to milk the cat. You got to really yeah, get it to hold uh, still. All, it takes all hands time. on deck. It, it takes time. It, 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 you got to be really gentle. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Sorry. So, but he didn't want to see it broken up. The plan was yes. at least to try and keep the core countries together, the Rubik countries Russia, Ukraine, mm-hmm. Belarus, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. Uh, right. You know, Russia has always needed Ukraine's agriculture and yes. Ukraine needs Russian natural resources, especially gas mm-hmm. and things like that. Yes. And there is and was a, a large Russian-speaking uh, and Russian-loyal population in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they wanted so Gorbachev wanted to keep uh, these countries together, but uh, but Ukraine uh, at the time decided against that. Probably prompted right. a little bit by the United States, and they decided to go independent mm-hmm. in 1991 rather than form a new yeah. republic with Russia. Now, right. December first, they vote for independence. Sorry, of, go ahead. 
Of course, the United States uh, wanted to get as many of the former Soviet bloc countries as they could, Warsaw yes. Pact countries, into their into the US-led economic bloc. And, and as we've explained endlessly on our Cold War show over the years, um, right. it, it, the Cold War was basically a, a fight over economic blocks. Yeah. Um, yes. It was the 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 Moscow led block versus the Washington led block, uh, because they had very different views on socioeconomics, and they were trying to get as many countries as they could to join their team, because you right. can't do it alone. You know, you need to have markets, baby. Yeah, you markets. need to have markets. You need to be able to trade. Russia, in particular, mm. needs um, warm water ports yeah. to get ships in and out, and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about endlessly. If I could real quick, when you were saying, and I just want to play Captain Obvious here, when you were saying Gorbachev does not want the core that is the Soviet Union to break up, it's not ego, it's not spite, it's defense. There, I mean, the more people that we have together, we're, we're helping to defend each other, the better. And obviously the, the West is still going to play its games. The CIA is still going to do what it's going to do. So Gorbachev isn't being a dick just for the sake of being a dick. He's like, we need to have some kind of guaranteed security. So let's keep as many countries as we can. But you're right. When it breaks apart, America's like going, ooh, let's see if we can get some of those smaller countries. Let's see if we can get those markets. But again, it would have been wise for the Americans. And you probably would need an FDR, not a George Bush or Bill Clinton. You would probably need an FDR to go, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity Let's do almost anything we can, even a modified Marshall Plan, to bring Russia into our fold. It would be the greatest victory since World War II, and we did the exact opposite. And, you know, there were some discussions to that effect. One of the first things mm -hmm. Gorbachev did, as uh, I'll talk about in more detail a bit later on, mm -hmm. uh, um, was to try and join NATO. And Boris yes. Yeltsin tried to join NATO. I mean, they wanted to- I didn't to know that. I yeah. did not know that until I had to do research for this. Yeah. Doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, and, and that was, you know, quasi-rejected um, slash made really difficult. Like, as we talked about in the Cold War show, when they were concocting the Marshall Plan uh, after World War mm -hmm. II, Russia tried to get in on the Marshall Plan, and the conditions yes. were deliberately put into place by the U.S. to make it impossible for Russia to join. They did the same thing with, with joining NATO. Anyway. Right. Focusing on Ukraine, so Ukraine goes independent in 1991 and then there was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004. Mm -hmm. Now, the background to that was that um, there was a presidential election in Ukraine in 2004. You had the sitting prime minister, Viktor Yanukovych, um, who was being supported by the outgoing president, uh, Leonid Kushma, to be the, the, the new president. Um, Kushma couldn't run again. He'd already served two terms uh, and constitutionally couldn't run a third time. And he was also up, you know, there was a whole bunch of uh, corruption allegations against him and all this kind of stuff. Right. The right. opposition candidate was uh, another Victor, Victor Yushchenko, two Victor Ys, not very confusing at all. Uh, Victor Yanukovych. <laughs> is sort of right. the, the preferred favourite by the outgoing president. And uh, Viktor Yushchenko was the uh, uh, opposition leader. He was also a former prime minister. He'd been prime minister right. 99 to 2001. It was a very close yeah. election. Um, Yanukovych, Kushma's guy, uh, eventually won, but there were massive claims mm -hmm. of corruption. There were protests. 
and um, things. This is where the Orange Revolution comes in. Now, the interesting thing about the Orange Revolution mm. is mm-hmm. that Yushchenko, the challenger who lost, right. was poisoned with uh, dioxin, leaving him in, he survived, but he was left right. extremely disfigured. This really, you know, sort oh of pockmarked, uh, yeah. red face. And here's the irony: Yushchenko's party during the campaign had called themselves the Orange Party. They they'd selected um, the color of orange as their right. color, and and the incumbents had blue. They had orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is where the name the Orange Revolution comes from when they have gotcha. the protests against the election. But the poison he was given was TCDD, also known as 2378-tetrachlorodibenzopedioxin. Right. A.K.A. Which- Agent Orange from the Vietnam oh. War, which the U.S. military Fuck. dropped on the Viet Cong and a lot of civilians. Yes. Uh, right. Operation Ranch Hand during the Vietnam War. So he was poisoned uh, with Agent Orange during the Orange mm-hmm. Revolution. Uh, they were like, Consistent. well, listen. Yeah, like, like yeah. it was. <laughs> oh, we got something for that. <laughs> like a glove. We need, to, yeah. we need to poison the Orange Revolution. Yeah. I think we've still got some Agent Orange. Um, anyway, right. after the protest, yeah. there was another runoff election. Yushchenko, uh, Mr. Orange from mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs, was uh, declared the official winner and was inaugurated in early 2005. Right. Um, then, five years later, 2010, Yankovic replaced Yushchenko. They had another election. Yankovic is back, baby. Yushchenko's out. Revolving door. Yeah. Then in 2014, they had the Euromaidan clashes. Yankovic was out again. And a lot of this had to do with um, whether or not Ukraine was going to join NATO. Um, Mm. He was pushing for them to join NATO. They'd been invited to join NATO. And then he pulled out at the last minute and said, no, no, we're not going to do it. And there was, you know, massive protests and uproar in uh, in Kiev and across Ukraine. Um, and unlike the Orange Revolution, which was bloodless, uh, in this case there was about a hundred deaths. People, we talked about this on this show uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago when we were covering this. Um, right, there were people getting were getting sniped in the protest. People were getting sniped by what looked like police off of buildings. It was blamed on the Yanukovych government. But uh, mm-hmm. whether or not they were actually responsible is uh, doubtful, and the people responsible have never been brought to justice. As we've talked about on this show, again, a couple of years ago, but it's worth t- talking about again, uh, during those Euromaidan protests in 2014, which was during the Obama administration when Joe Biden was mm. the veep and was sort of Obama's uh, point man in Ukraine, uh, while right. Hunter Biden was, uh, you know, trying to uh, elevate his own business interests in Ukraine, purely coincidentally, do. and Joe didn't know anything right. about that. No. Like we were both Shocked. there talking to <laughs> leaders of the country in the same week, but, you know, who knew? Um, I ran into him in a 7-Eleven. I went, oh, son, hey, what are you doing oh, here? So hey, just hey, yeah, that my dad's here. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, in yeah. 2000, so my point is that uh, during the Euromaidan protests, the US 
handpick the next government. Um, On February 4th, 2014, a recording of a phone call between Victoria Nuland, who at the time was the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs at the US Mm -hmm. State Department. I think she still is. I saw her turn up in the New York Times yesterday. Um, had a, she had a, there was a phone call between her and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at the time, Jeffrey Piat, um, on January 28th, 2014. It was published in YouTube. Mm-hmm. This is in the middle of the uh, maiden protests. And I'm going to play it in a second, but as you'll hear, they're discussing who should be in government after Yanukovych gets kicked out. And... Right. Um, they decide uh, basically who was going to be running the government. They're, they're, so here, let me let me see if I can play this call for you. What do you think? Uh, I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now. So we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up, is exactly the one you made to to Yachts. And I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess... You think what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm kind I, I, of, I, just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week. You know, I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay, good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step? My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting and that Yats was going to offer in that context a, a three-way, you know, the three plus one conversation or three plus two with you. Is that not how you understood it? No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed. But I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, Klitschko has been the top dog, he's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got. He's probably talking to his guys at this point. So, I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the personality management among the three, and it, and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it, behind it before they all sit down and he, um, he explains why he doesn't like it. Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after? Okay, will do. Thanks. Okay, I've now written – oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He, he's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU. 
No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now. And I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko. And if you can just keep I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych. But we probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden. And I said, probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. OK, great. Right. Thanks. So um, just uh, explaining a little bit of that, uh, the guy that they're putting yeah. forward as the guy they want to end up running the country, Yatsanuk or Yats, as they call him, because they're on chummy terms with him. Um, he, uh, he was the Prime Minister of Ukraine from the 20, he became the Prime Minister of Ukraine February 2014, stayed in the job for two years. Right. I think he was a uh, uh, European central banker kind of guy, um, lawyer, banker, yeah. uh, very, very tight with the US. So they basically had yeah. and the other classic line from uh, Newland there was fuck the EU uh, <laughs> in determining. What's God. going to go down? So, yeah. Well, that's why you want to be a superpower. One, you get to pick who's the president of other countries, and you can say fuck to you to your allies, and they still got to eat shit and do what you say. That's what it means to be the sole su- superpower. And why wouldn't you want to maintain that status? Hmm. So, you know, that um, basically sounds like a U.S. coup. To me, and and um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll yeah. get into the background of the Orange Revolution a, nice a little bit. But okay, so look at it from Russian perspective. Um, they right. had a they had a guy there in power who was uh, on their side. They had him. It was mm-hmm. it was a struggle. He was going to join the NATO, uh, join NATO, which Russia didn't want. He they managed to convince him not to do that. Then the US comes in, manufactures a revolution, and I'll talk about that in a point in a minute. Um, right. And and then installs their own guy in there. So Ukraine has basically been taken over at that juncture by the US, which it's probably which probably means yeah. it's it's going to end up as a NATO country. It's a former Soviet Union country. It's right on the border of Russia. This is a direct yeah. threat to Russia, Russia's interests. Um, right. Getting back to the question of the killings that happened during the. Um, protest, the Euromaidan protest, mm-hmm. there was another leaked phone yeah. call, which I won't play right now, between Estonia's foreign minister and the EU foreign policy chief at the time. The, um, the, the Estonia's foreign minister, Ermas Payet, explains that the shooters were not related to Yanukovych's government and were working for the new coalition, the incoming government. Mm. Um who obviously would be investigating the shootings after they got into power. Right. This is Yatz's government. Yeah. Uh, and then after him came Poroshenko. They both sort of stonewalled any investigation into the shooting. Canadian historian Ivan Kachinovsky 
wrote, no one has been sentenced for any of the maiden killings. This was the best documented case of mass killing in history, broadcast live on TV and the internet in presence of thousands of eyewitnesses. It was filmed by hundreds of journalists from major media in the West, Ukraine, Russia, and many other countries, as well as by numerous social media users. Yet to this day, no one has been brought to justice for this major and consequential crime. And we'd like it that way. Yeah. So. Now, the Orange, Orange Revolution, uh, going back to that, was um, funded and coordinated by the US, at least according to the late Ian Trainer, who was the Guardian's mm-hmm. European chief for uh, 25 years or something. He died, sadly, of cancer a few years ago. Um, right. But in 2004, so this is not the Euromadian protest. This is the one before that, the 2004 ones, the Orange Revolution. He wrote... Mm-hmm. Ukraine, traditionally passive in its politics, has been mobilised by the young democracy activists and will never be the same again. But while the gains of the orange-bedecked chestnut revolution are Ukraine's, the campaign is an American creation, a sophisticated and brilliantly conceived exercise in Western branding and mass marketing that, in four countries in four years, has been used to try to salvage rigged elections and topple unsavory regimes. So he's talking about the color revolutions that happened in the early 2000s, right? But basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, after the the fall of the Soviet Union, the the, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, the U.S. Right. just decided they could topple governments all over the world by funding yeah. activists and sponsoring them and getting involved and all that kind of stuff. Funded, this is uh, back to Ian Trainer. funded and organized by the U.S. government, deploying U.S. consultancies, pollsters, diplomats, the two big American parties and U.S. non-government organizations. The campaign was first used in Europe and Belgrade in 2000 to beat Slobodan Milosevic at the ballot box. Richard Miles, the U.S. ambassador in Belgrade, played a key role. And by last year, the U.S. ambassador in Tbilisi, Georgia, he repeated the trick in Georgia, coaching Mikhail Shakashvili in how to bring down Eduard Shevardnadze. Uh, I did not see that coming. Uh, ten months I did sh- I did Shevardnadze that coming. Ten months after the success in Belgrade, the U.S. ambassador in Minsk, Michael Kozak, uh, not Kojak, who's like, who loves your baby? Right. A veteran of similar <laughs> operations in Central America, notably in Nicaragua, organized a near-identical campaign to try and defeat the Belarus hardman Alexander Lukashenko. That one failed. Yeah. There will be no Kostunica in Belarus. This is what Leg- Lukashenko said. Uh, he's referring right. to uh, Voslav Kostunuka, who was uh, the guy that they – put into place in uh, Belgrade, I think. No, maybe Georgia. Yeah. Um, Lukashenko, by the way, is still the president of Belarus, um, ha- has been in the role since the post was created in 1994 and refers to himself as Europe's last dictator. He's got a little badge oh. he wears. Oh. He paints on his business card. He hands it out. Right. Tell you what, you want to very basic. Oh, yeah. yeah. You want to pick up name. chicks. Europe's last dictator. Last right? Yeah, it's great. Dictator. Yeah, that's yeah. all you need. Yeah. Nothing else. Uh, uh, yeah. But uh, getting back to a trainer, this is what he says. Uh, but experience gained in Serbia, Georgia, and Belarus has been invaluable in plotting to beat the regime of Leonard Kuchma in Kiev. 
the operation mm. Engineering Democracy Through the Ballot Box and Civil Disobedience is now so slick that the methods have matured into a template for winning other people's elections. Now, wow. this is not Noam Chomsky saying this. This is Ian Trainer, the Guardian's European chief for, as I said, 20-odd years. So yeah. um, uh, that so it seems quite clear from that. And uh, also, by the way, in 2013, Victoria Nuland, we played on the clip before, um, Mm -hmm. following her third trip to Ukraine in five weeks, this is just before the um, Euromaidan revolutions, told the National Press Club, since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in needs and other goals. Ah, okay. Well, I just want to do this real quick. A second ago, you mentioned Georgia, and you probably know this, but Ukraine, Georgia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina are also on the track, as far as NATO is concerned, to eventually join them. So how can Putin not look at this and go, you people are just coming closer and closer to my borders with your troops and your NATO? What would you do if I asked Mexico to join the Warsaw Pact, if, if, if it still existed? I mean, we would be shitting bricks. And so how can Putin not feel threatened by this? Yeah. So, like, again, to... to- to put what's happening today in perspective, this is what yeah. Russia's been watching happen in these countries, yeah. um, you know, for the last 20-odd years. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're obviously aware of who's sponsoring it and what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, who's driving this. It's basically the U.S. taking over these countries, not by marching in armies, but by using money. And, right. you know, bribes, uh, tactics to create civil disturbances, media coverage to make it look yeah. like it's the, you know, the uh, pro-Russian governments in these places as, as the bad guys. They're the ones that are violent. Mm-hmm. They are literally sort of false flag operations. Uh, yeah. But doing it American style, which, you know, they learned how to do during the Marshall Plan, which is you don't need to yeah. send in an army if you can just buy your way to political yeah. success. Dollars are just as effective, if not more so, than bullets. Hmm. So and harder and, to if, and it, harder to get on yeah, camera too. Ahead. Like it's yeah. you know the money yes. changing hands yes. in the background, hard to trace, hard yeah. to get on camera. Exactly, exactly. Um, now the U.S. of course interfering in elections uh, and revolutions of other countries isn't new by any means. Like we talked about mm-hmm. it a lot on our Cold War show. We've talked about how the CIA got their feet wet. Uh, in the Italian elections in 1948, I think it was, where they used a shit ton of money, which was um, dark secret money because the CIA didn't have any congressional approval to overthrow elections or or to influence elections. They used a lot of money to get the uh, right-wing Christian Democrats uh, elected in Mm -hmm. Italy in 1948 and then continued to... Uh, spend money on determining Italian electoral outcomes for the next 25, 30 years. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, the Marshall Plan in the late 40s was another step to, you know, do that on a grander scale, as we've talked about. Um, they, they basically mm-hmm. figured out how to use money to 
just buy elections by throwing so much money at propaganda, mobilization, and then made sure that any and, and also offering money. Okay, we will we will give you money or credit notes, really, not money. We'll give you credit notes right. to buy American goods and services for your country only if the party that we want to win wins. <laughs> And if when they win, shame. they yeah. eliminate all of the opposition. Because, uh, we're not going to give the money if you pick a socialist government. Um, you do you, right? But if you pick a socialist <laughs> government, you don't get our billion dollars. Yeah. Okay, right. I want to give it to you. I so want to. Oh, I'd hate not to. Well, I'm not actually going to give it to you. I'm going to give you a line of credit. <laughs> I'm going. Right, right, right. Hey, by the way, of all those books on the bookshelf, which one is uh, mine? Um, actually Heather's has got yours. It's beside her, her desk, uh, her, mm-hmm. her nightstand. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to know what she does with that book. Mm-hmm. That's got your name on it. When the lights go out, I mm-hmm. try not to think about it. Thank you for bringing up a painful subject. I left her a little note in it. I, I wrote a little <laughs> note. I said, that's all. Right. Um, <laughs> and then of course, in 1953, the CIA took it to another step where they actually overthrew Mossadegh in Iran with a fake revolution yes. they blamed on Moscow and the communists. But those were during the Cold War, uh, justified by yeah. stop the commies and or, in Iran's case, keep the oil flowing. The, um, but the ones we just talked about all happened after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So, again, imagine you're Russia. The USSR yeah. is over. You did the hard thing. You wound up yeah. your empire. You let it collapse. When these countries went independent, you didn't invade. You didn't do anything. You let them leave. Right. It was all okay. They did. They literally said, go, go. You said, yeah. we, we want to be nice. We want to be the good guys. We want to be part of a new international coalition where we're all equal and we can all talk. And then for the next right. 15, 20 years, you watch uh, the US basically just overthrow governments in your region, on your borders, and install right. their people and push to get these countries to join NATO, which for some reason still yeah. exists after the breakup of the Soviet Union. <laughs> it was created to defend Europe against the Soviet Union. Soviet Union's no longer there, right. but NATO's still there with missiles pointed at Russia. Uh, you're gonna, you, you, you're gonna yeah. lose some sleep at night. Little, I think little little tense. So what you're telling me is, and I've never thought this sentence in my entire existence. America doesn't know how to win. We won the Cold War. We act like we didn't win the Cold War, and we just keep pursuing Russia. It's it's on its knees. It's economically weak. It's fragmented. It's gotten to the point where Gorbachev is like, "Go in peace, you little satellites. I, I can't. I can't afford to keep my military on you know on your soil. Whatever." America does not recognize the fact or doesn't care the fact that it won the Cold War and it keeps up its antics. It doesn't matter if it's the Soviet Union or Russia. You're our adversary because I don't think we know how to exist without an adversary. Um, and plus, we want we want to keep being the, the only superpower. And these are things that superpowers do. They dominate in any way they can. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get to something on that soon. But okay, um, yeah. some some evidence for that. Um, viewpoint from American strategic planners. But uh, imagine again that you're Russia during this period. You're watching America do all this. You have to ask yourself, why are they doing this? What are their intentions? Mm -hmm. Now, on one level, well, on one level, as I said before, it's it's probably to stitch up all of the economies of these countries. We know that America's 
economic objectives uh, from at least, well, from the end of the towards the end of the nineteenth century, uh, this was their objectives, and but then they were able to realize that after the end of World War Two was to make sure that every mm-hmm. country in the world was theirs to control economically, meaning if you have natural right. resources, we want them. Uh, yeah. We don't want to pay too much for them. And we want to be able to sell our shit uh, to your people. And we want to yeah. get as much of your trade dollars as possible. All right? right. No tariffs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We're going to put tariffs on our stuff. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, free yeah. trade. Except when we don't want it, but for every one for you, way. free trade. Yeah. Um, yeah. Call me one way. Yeah. Then, uh, so so okay. So we talked about the Orange Revolution in two thousand and four, and we talked about the Euro Maiden in two thousand and fourteen. In the middle of all of that, in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. at NATO's Bucharest summit, it was agreed right. that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO. Mm. These are two okay. former Soviet countries. Uh, right. on, on on the borders of Russia, Georgia, obviously Stalin's uh, home country, and yeah. uh, they're going to join NATO. Now, mm-hmm. from a Russian perspective, that is, uh, you That's know. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a bunch of bunch complete of, it's a bunch of fucking bullshit, bullshit mom. <laughs> um, now, unfortunately, <laughs> for NATO... Right? The Ukrainian population at the time thought joining NATO was a really bad idea. Mm. Okay. There was a public opinion poll on the issue conducted by a think tank in Kiev in 2008 that showed that only 21% of the Ukrainian population supported the idea of NATO membership. And the poll talked about the main reasons for the overwhelming negative attitude on behalf of Ukrainians towards NATO. Mm-hmm. Most Ukrainians fear that this would spoil relations with Russia, 74% of those polled, force them to take right. part in US-led wars, according to 67%, exacerbate tension in society, 60%, prompt yeah. more spending on defence, 58%, and make Ukraine a target for terrorists, 58%. Yeah. So what did the uh, Ukrainian government do? Did they give up the plan to join NATO? No. They hired Barry and Stan. Uh, Barry and Stan, <laughs> the world's oldest marketing uh, company. <laughs> for, they're the vampires, but go ahead. Run by, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whether or not they're the original vampires, we haven't been able to tell whether <laughs> Julius Caesar bit them yeah. or they yeah. bit him. But they were around in Alexander the Great's time, yeah. so they, they predate. Right. But, but just know that by 2008, they are coked out. They are completely coked out. If vampires are not, they're coked mm. out. Well, they, 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 they had the forethought to stitch stitch up the world's supply of uh, cocaine oh, uh, many, many thousands smart. of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They came up with a four-year, $6 million right. public awareness plan aimed at winning the support of the population for NATO membership. According to the plan, awesome. public support for NATO right. would grow from uh, 21% in 2008 to 55% by 2011. That was the plan. That's a plan. Uh, And the plan involved putting together a network of NATO information officers across the country, Uh 
printing posters, right. calendars, brochures, launching mandatory NATO awareness courses in schools, organizing Fuck. soccer matches between teams from Ukraine and other NATO member states, uh, inviting Ooh. DJs from NATO member states to come to Ukraine <coughs> to do right. free concerts at nightclubs. But that uh, shit works. Yes. Yeah. And who do you think yeah. funded all of that, really? Oh, 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 uh, my, uh, whoever was paying taxes in 2008 yeah, in the United States. Not you? I'm guessing. You weren't paying taxes back then? I, I haven't paid taxes yet. Uh, no. Under the radar, but I can't, I can't talk about it. Don't talk about it yet. We'll talk later. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. In his book, uh, Frontline Ukraine Crisis in the Borderlands, Richard Sakwa, who I mentioned at the beginning of the show, wrote that the Russo-Georgian War of August 2008 was, in effect, the first of the wars to stop NATO enlargement. The Ukraine crisis of 2014 was the second. It is not clear whether humanity would survive a third. Mm. Um, Damn. So, you know, it's important to understand the, the context of what's going on today from a Russian perspective. Like everything we get in the media is either the, the Western perspective on this, sometimes the Ukrainian perspective. Um, and if you ever get anything about the Russian perspective, it's kind of uh, negated fairly quickly. Well, yeah, they're unhappy right. about NATO enlargement, but basically fuck them. It's not up to them. Countries can do whatever they want, etc., etc. Mm. which is yeah. true to a point. Yeah. Uh, but again, flip side being, uh, you see your country being surrounded by enemy forces. Um, what do you do? Do you just sit there and go, all right, or do you do something (laughs) about it? Keeping in mind too, that, you know, not a good history between the West and Russia as listeners to our Cold War show will be very well aware. Uh, Russia was invaded by the West uh, twice mm-hmm. in the 20th century and, yes. you know, then threatened with nuclear war um, in the late 40s and then mm-hmm. uh, found themselves, you know, being targeted by, uh, you know, uh, economic and military wars and all of their partner states being targeted for the rest of the 20th century. Um I want to turn to University of Chicago Professor of Political Science, John Mearsheimer. I've read a number okay. of his books over the years. Uh, he got a good book that came out um, 10 years ago on the Israel lobby in Washington, which is worth a read. He's also known mm. as the father of offensive realism, um, which basically says, you know, real politic means you need to go on the offense sometimes to get what you want. In, in right. 2014, he wrote an article. I think it was in Foreign Affairs. It's also in the New York Times. This is what he said in 2014. President Obama has decided to get tough with Russia by imposing sanctions and increasing support for Ukraine's new government. This is a big mistake. This response is based on the same faulty logic that helped precipitate the crisis. Instead of resolving the dispute, it will lead to more trouble. The White House view widely shared by Beltway insiders, is that the United States bears no responsibility for causing the current crisis. This is the Euromaidan protests. In their eyes, it's all President Vladimir V. Putin's fault 
I like how they always have to say V. They always have to get his middle name. Yeah. And they don't say President Barack Hussein H. Obama. Obama. They never put it right, on, but right. it's always got to be Vladimir V. Putin. Does it make it more sinister? I think the the V is a very sinister letter. Yeah. But I could be wrong. Unless Winston yeah. Churchill does it, and then it's okay. Or then it's okay. Then it's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's Putin's fault and his motives are illegitimate. This is wrong. Yes. Washington played a key role in precipitating this dangerous situation and Mr. Putin's behaviour is motivated by the same geopolitical considerations that influence all great powers, including the United States. The taproot mm -hmm. of the current crisis is NATO expansion and Washington's commitment to move Ukraine out of Moscow's orbit and integrate it into the West. The Russians have intensely disliked but tolerated substantial NATO expansion, including the right. accession of Poland and the Baltic countries. But when NATO announced in 2008 that Georgia and Ukraine will become members of NATO, Russia drew a line in the sand. Georgia and Ukraine are not just states in Russia's neighbourhood, they are on its doorstep. Indeed, yes. Russia's forceful response in its August 2008 war with Georgia was driven in large part by Moscow's desire to prevent Georgia from joining NATO and integrating into the West. Mr. Putin, mm. of course, viewed these developments as a direct threat to Russia's core strategic interests. Who can blame him? After all, the United States, which has been unable to leave the Cold War behind, has treated Russia yes. as a potential threat since the early 1990s and ignored its protests about NATO's expansion and its objections to America's plan to build missile defense systems in Eastern Europe. Mm. So we've got the viewpoints there of, uh, you know, political science professor at University of Chicago, John Mearsheimer, Richard Sakwa at the University of mm -hmm. Kent. Um, you know, these are uh, uh, serious um, political scientists <laughs> at serious universities yes who have been explaining for years and years and years that uh, if the United States keeps pushing for NATO expansion into countries that border Russia, right? Russia can't just sit there and tolerate it, but the US continues to do that. And if you read any of the mainstream media these days, um, you know, all of the diplomatic negotiations that have been going on between Putin and Biden and Putin and Macron, when they do mention NATO as an issue, the mainstream media will say that uh, Putin raised the fact that NATO expansion is a threat to Russia and that he wanted an ironclad guarantee this time that Ukraine would not join NATO. And the American viewpoint, Biden has said that's just not on the table. You know, we're not even going to discuss right. that. So you, as, you can't have diplomacy if you won't even discuss the number right. one issue for the other party. That's not diplomacy. That's just fuck you, basically. It's right. fuck, fuck you diplomacy, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, like Victoria Nuland said yeah. about the EU, it's just fuck you diplomacy. Yeah. Fuck them. Yeah. yeah. We're going to do what we no. want. We do what we want. You don't even yeah. get the fuck, you yeah. don't get a fucking say in this. Yeah. Which, you know, is, yeah. is, is, is not how diplomacy is supposed to work. One of the things that I have come to appreciate in researching, getting ready for this show is um, 
And you never know how much is true, but uh, there's always talk about Russian bots. There's always talk about Russian disinformation. I'm sure Russia does it. I know America does it. I think practically every country does it. But there's a part of me that's going, well, Russia can't compete with us militarily. They can't compete with us economically. So they're going to find some weapon in some way to be able to, at the very least, cause disruptions within the United States because we keep fucking with them. We keep fucking with their national security, their interests. I get all that. And so there's a part of me, and I'm not trying to get shot by fellow Americans, but there's a part of me that's, I can understand why Putin is like, well, this is pretty kind of passive and all I can really do is get you, all you Americans to fight and argue amongst each other. But it's kind of one of the weapons I got. I can't fight you. I can't outspend you. So let me find some way to mess with you because even though Russian bots are yeah, it's pretty bad, it's pretty nasty, that's absolutely nothing compared to toppling governments and having allied NATO forces get ever closer to Russians to Russia's border. I mean, in some ways you can say Putin's been semi pretty calm in his reactions over the years to American and uh, Western aggression. And, you know, you are fond of saying on our shows that all politics is domestic or local. You know, everything that happens has to do with domestic political considerations. And, you know, uh, if you're Putin or Medvedev, uh, Medvedev, uh, you know, at home, if you're just letting this happen, you have to answer to the Russian people. Why are you letting our enemies get closer to our borders uh, every day? You exactly. Know, what the fuck are Do you something. doing about it? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Because yeah. I was reading, and I'll just make this real quick, but uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, um, after they could not stand up to the Americans, they were very unpopular in their country. And even today, I think they're they're viewed most unfavorably. And so here's Putin going, I'm not going down that fucking path. I'm going to fight back in some way or some form. But at the very least, keep bringing these issues up to people in the West. That That's him trying to start a dialogue. It's like, hey, I got you. You keep pushing me. You keep pushing me. At some point, I've got to push back. And I really don't want to. Let's talk. And America's like, you know what? You're a second rate power. Fuck you. Get used to it. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Basically. And painting yeah. him out to be the aggressor. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1991, Yeltsin said Russia wanted to join NATO, and in 1992, he went to the UN and talked about the Russian desire for peace. I read his speech, and here's just a small section of it. He said, Russia considers the United States and the West not as mere partners, but rather as allies. It is a basic prerequisite for, I would say, a revolution in peaceful cooperation among civilized nations. We reject any subordination of foreign policy to pure ideology or ideological doctrines. Our principles are clear and simple. Supremacy of democracy, human rights and freedoms, legal and moral standards. So, mm-hmm. you know, Yeltsin, Gorbachev first and then Yeltsin after him were basically saying all of the right things. This was an opportunity yeah. for a clean slate. This was an opportunity yes for the West to, as you said earlier, welcome Russia into the fold, uh, yeah. you know, give them a nipple, whip it out, give them a nipple, let them suckle right. on the teat and, Bring you know, just and, – and, and, but instead of doing that, we yeah. took a different approach. Now, the U.S. Yeah. wasn't ready to accept the U.S. as, a, uh, as an ally or a partner and to understand why, you have to understand a little bit about the Wolfowitz uh, doc- doctrine, Wolfowitz. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. Paul Volcker, who was the Secretary of Defense in 1992 in the US, authored the document that first was known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine and basically then morphed into the Bush Doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, Wolfowitz Doctrine is sort of the unofficial name of the defense planning guidance for 1994 to 1999 fiscal years. It was published under the U.S. Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Paul Wolfowitz, and his deputy, mm-hmm. Scooter Libby, uh, right. who went on to become the chief of staff to the vice president of the United States, uh, Dick Cheney, and then assistant to the president, George mm-hmm. W. Bush, until right. he was indicted on five counts uh, yeah. by a uh, federal grand jury investigating the leak of CIA officer Valerie Plame Wilson, was found guilty, sentenced to mm-hmm. many years in jail, until fully pardoned by Trump in 2018. Anywho. Yes. Right. The Wolfowitz Doctrine. Uh, yeah, Trump in 18. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever read uh, about the Wolfowitz Doctrine, Ray, that come up in your prep uh yeah i did uh, and basically again and and I, and I won't go too far because i'm sure you've got a lot on it but america's entire foreign policy objective since 1945 was to either figure out a way to get along with soviet russia or destroy them and finally in 1992 whatever the berlin wall comes starts to come down uh the um soviet union breaks apart we have won Everything, everything up until this moment, we have one. We are at a crossroads. We have two choices. And Wolfowitz puts forward one particular option. But I'll let you tell that story. Yeah. Came down in 89, by the way, the Berlin Wall. 89. Yeah. Thank you. Um, now, the Wolfowitz Doctrine was, a, was an internal planning document for the U.S. government. wasn't intended for public release, but got leaked. Right. Um, to the New York Times in early 1992 Mm -hmm. and sparked a a bit of a public controversy about U.S. uh, foreign policy. Um, Was sort of widely criticised at the time for being an imperialist document. um, Yeah. Outlining a policy of unilateralism for the U.S. around the world, preemptive military action, not surprising to anyone who... Whatever we want. ...pays attention to... U.S. foreign policy, but you know, it it, it, it was like written down by a senior government official and made public, which sort of um, wasn't something that happened very often. Um, yeah. It was rewritten and watered down a little bit by Dick Cheney and uh, Colin yeah. Powell. At the time, right? But you know, it, it's it's really a good insight, I think, into how American planners really think about the world. They had yes. to rewrite it and water it down a little bit because it had been leaked, and everyone was like, "Oh, well, well it's just a just a first draft, kids. Come on, like I've seen <laughs> your sc- down. I've seen your screenplay first drafts. I mean, these things need a lot of work. Come on, like everyone, relax." <laughs> But but the essence doesn't change is yeah. the point. Sorry, go ahead. Like yeah. we kind of know that this is what they really think and the right. later draft is what they want us to think that they think. But yes, yes. Um, I'll just read some samples of the first draft of the doctrine. It starts off, our first objective is to prevent the reemergence of a new rival 
either on the territory of the former Soviet Union or elsewhere that poses a threat on, on the order of that posed formerly by the Soviet Union. This is a dominant consideration underlying the new regional defence strategy and requires that we endeavour to prevent any hostile power from dominating a region whose resources would, under consolidated control, be sufficient to generate global power. So effectively, don't let any country become powerful if they could be a threat to the United States' interests. Never again. Our most fundamental goal is to deter or defeat attack from whatever source. The second goal is to strengthen and extend the system of defence arrangements that binds democratic and like-minded nations together in common defence against aggression, build habits of cooperation, avoid the renationalisation of security policies, and provide security at lower costs and with lower risks for all, which all sounds pretty reasonable, even the bit about the avoiding of renationalisation of uh, security policies. Although yeah. the one for all and all for one security policy only really works if every country is involved. Um, so equal. when, yes, and when Russia's kept out of the loop, then mm-hmm. there's nobody to defend them if they get attacked. So that puts them at a We're strong okay disadvantage. Well, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> It goes on. Our preference for a collective response to preclude threats or, if necessary, to deal with them is a key feature of our regional defence strategy. The third goal is to preclude any hostile power from dominating a region critical to our interests and also thereby to strengthen the barriers against the re-emergence of a global threat to the interests of the US and our allies, which is sort of a repeating, I think, of the first point. Um, But this is where it gets really interesting. In general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nobody is allowed to dominate a region that is critical to U.S. interests. Oh, oh, um, since I'm the only superpower and I consider the entire world under my umbrella, isn't everything in my sphere of interest? Just asking. Yes. And, uh, you know, not just on this world, but all the worlds. It's (laughs) basically, yeah, it's basically the Monroe Doctrine writ large. Yes, yes. Explain the Monroe Doctrine again for people that uh, don't know the Oh, God. Um, 19th century history. Wasn't that... um, There was a certain amount of territory or region that the Americans considered off-hands to Europe uh, or any other major powers. I'm just trying to remember. And we can do what we want within this region, uh, mostly Latin America. I can't remember exactly now, but I guess something like that attitude now for the entire planet, because we consider yeah. everything our interests. Yeah. James Monroe, 1823, articulated the doctrine that anything that's close to us belongs to us, and you can all just fuck off, <laughs> basically. But, but but seriously, think about it for a second. I just, I just want to stop. I mean, the Cold War is over. We won. And our attitude is... We will do whatever we have to do so there will never, ever be even a potential of a rival Mm. for us. We will topple governments, bribe wood. We we never want to be challenged again. Mm. Is that arrogance or insecurity? 
I, I don't know what it is, but suddenly now we're the bad guys. Because you're right, when uh, the Wolfowitz report came out, people are like, whoa, 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 this is imperialist. You're making choices for everybody. You're going to dominate everything, and you want everybody to be okay with it. But I guess, Amer- I, were, were we like taking a victory lap and say, we hmm. defeated Russia, now the whole world is ours. Come on, every – I mean, it's it's staggering. Which I think is, I think that's a natural response to winning. You know, it's like, yes. great, yes. we won the world. The world is ours now. We can do whatever the fuck right. we want. No one can challenge us. But of course, but this is not a game. Well, this it is. is real life. This, no, it is a game. Yeah, for these so it's, 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 that's true. It's a game. But, them. you know, it, 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 but when you look at it from the perspective of the other countries, uh, oh, that no. aren't, you know, uh, getting a part of the spoils of victory. Um, right. It's it's a bit like um, the the reparation payments made on Germany after World War One. Like mm-hmm. when you want to punish a country so much that you're going to crush it and make sure that right. its people suffer endlessly. Yes. Um, particularly a proud people with a proud history who think of themselves as uh, you know a great nation of great yeah. people. It's, uh, you know, they're going to eventually. Bitter pill. They're going to yes. fight back. Um, exactly. It goes on, the uh, Wolfowitz Doctrine. We continue mm-hmm. to recognize that collectively the conventional forces of the states formerly comprising the Soviet Union retain the most military potential in all of Eurasia, and we do not dismiss the risks to stability in Europe from a nationalist backlash in Russia or efforts to reincorporate into Russia the newly independent republics of Ukraine, Belarus, and possibly others. We must, however, Hmm. be mindful that democratic change in Russia is not irreversible and that despite its current travails, Russia will remain the strongest military power in Eurasia and the only power in the world with the capability of destroying the United States. To paraphrase that, Russia remains the enemy. In the Middle East and Southwest Asia, our overall objective is to remain the predominant outside power in the region and preserve Mm -hmm. US and Western access to the region's oil. Okay, so for the rest of the world, Russia's still the enemy. For the rest of the world, we want to be the only power and control all the oil. We also seek to deter further aggression in the region, foster regional stability, protect US nationals and property, and safeguard our access to international air and seaways. As demonstrated by Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, it remains fundamentally important to prevent a hegemon or alignment of powers from dominating the region. This pertains especially to the Arabian Peninsula. Therefore, we must continue to play a role through enhanced deterrence and improved cooperative security. Ignoring, of all, mm. of course, the fact that the US basically gave Saddam permission to invade Kuwait, as we've discussed right. in other episodes. Then we took it back. Um, now this, but, yeah. Sorry, go. On. Just, re- just real quick. I mean, just, and again, as someone who's you know, you've read a lot of history. I've read a lot of history. A lot of our listeners have read history. Here's a moment to bring not only bring Russia in the fold, which we've already said, but we could permanently, I think, and politically, put Russia, our new partner and equal partner, at odds with China. There would have been that to to break those two apart because they both have a, they both bring a lot to the table. If we could have made Russia our ally, brought them into uh, into the European Union or or whatever. But the point is, if we would have brought them in, 
China, because China is giving us a hard time now, and now Putin and and, uh, and uh, the president of China are getting together and and you know backing each other up. But the point is, here was a, here was another wonderful opportunity to isolate a, a country that we knew was economically starting to get their act together. That one day they'd be a powerhouse, so we'd have a powerful ally right on their door, and we screwed it up. And now China and Russia can get together and oppose our will. So again, just a huge political mistake, or I don't know if you want to call it short-sightedness, but I think the American mentality of having an adversary is just too powerful. And we couldn't see any other option than to keep fighting Russia, even though we had won. It in some ways doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And even though Russia was coming to the US and the, the international community cap in hand saying, yes, yes. We, we've changed. Uh, we've dismantled yeah. our empire. We want we to be part of the we international want to join community. You. Yeah, we want to join you. That, yeah. So you know, you can see from yeah. the Paul Volcker's document, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, um, how America viewed Russia at the time, which was basically yes. no fucking way are we letting these guys. Right. Yeah. Similarly, I got to say to how <clears throat> Stalin perceived Germany at the end of World War Two. Right. Um, you know, I've got. I'm going to put my boot on their throat, and I'm not taking and it I'm off. Not ever, ever, <laughs> exactly. At least exactly. fifty years, I'm not taking it off because they've invaded right. us twice. They've killed twenty million people, uh, Russians. Keep them down. And that's just in the yeah. last invasion, let alone you know the right. first one. Um, right. No fucking way are we letting that ever happen again. That the U.S. had the same view of Russia coming out of yeah. um, the end of the Cold War. Yeah. And it is a human view. I get that. You're right. And we won. We were probably excited. But sometimes if you're going to be a great statesman, sometimes you got to step way back, look at the map and think dispassionately. And I don't think there was very much of that going on. Look, I'm not going to take a moral position on whether or not the American view was right or wrong or even a strategic view on it. But the important thing for me uh, as an historian Mm -hmm. is to understand what happened. And what the consequences yeah. of that are. What's happening today right. is a direct consequence of that. Uh, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. decision to treat Russia as an yeah. enemy, even though they were coming to the West cap in hand saying, let's play nice. Um, right. Now, it's worth remembering that during this period, Yeltsin was implementing all of the radical privatization programs that were being uh, encouraged, pushed upon them by the West. If you want to be, mm-hmm. if you want to be in our gang, you have to yeah. privatize everything. Um, right. Then there was a fall in oil prices, partly encouraged by the um, OPEC countries, led to massive At Reagan's behest. Yes, led to massive yeah. economic tr- troubles. Um, yes. Oh, and Bush, you know, H. W. Bush, George H. W. Mm-hmm. Bush at that stage leading to their uh, economic problems. Uh, GDP fell by, I think, like 40 or 50% in those years. Uh, Inflation reached record levels. So they say, hey, we want to join the West. The West says you need to privatise everything. By the way, we're going to crash the oil price. Correct. Like their economy was fucked to begin with. It got double fucked. And, you know, that created – a massive problems, and the, obviously, of course, mm-hmm. you also have oligarchs coming in and buying up all of the national assets, which is where Russia is right. still today. Now, 
Yeltsin was aware of NATO's plans to expand and didn't openly oppose them, according to declassified mm. memos, uh, partly because he wanted to play nice with the West, partly because he had yeah. other fucking problems, um, but also because he was being handled by Clinton's people. Um, right. The Americans basically, Clinton basically went in and, uh, you know, sent his guys in there to manage Yeltsin, um, particularly, you know, when he was coming up for re-election in 96, there were concerns because the economy had crashed that, and Yeltsin mm-hmm. was very unpopular, that he would be defeated in the 96 election and would be replaced by an old school communist guy that the Americans right. wouldn't be able to work with. So as they do, line. and as they right. have done in all of these other countries that we've talked about, Ukraine, etc. They mm-hmm. went in to basically try and help him win the 96 election. Um, yeah. Clinton pushed the IMF to give him a, give Yeltsin a $10 billion loan just before the election. And wow. there was a team of uh, political consultants that went over there. <laughs> you know, we, during the um, Trump years, we all heard about the uh, Republican uh, political consultants who went over to Russia and Ukraine and places like this and were working with various guys tied to Trump um, later on. Uh, But this has been going on since the Clinton years. You know, it was a whole bunch of political operatives who worked for Democrats and Republicans and, you know, they were all over the place. They went over there. Yeah. And a, a, a few years earlier, Yeltsin had written to Clinton. September 93, wrote a letter to Clinton. He said, we understand, of course, that any possible integration of Eastern European countries into NATO will not automatically lead to the alliance somehow turning against Russia, but it is important to take into account how our public opinion might react to that step. Yeah. He also talked about the insurance given to the Soviet officials back in the early 90s, 1991, right. uh, uh, when they were talking about German unification, like the, the the discussions back then, which I'll get into more detail a bit in a minute, but when, they, when, when Gorbachev was meeting with the Americans and the British uh, to talk about getting out of East Germany and allowing for German unification, Part mm-hmm. of his concerns was, you know, the expansion of NATO. And yeah. Yeltsin mentions this in the 93 letter to Clinton. He says, um, the spirit of the treaty on the final settlement precludes the option of expanding the NATO zone into the east. So this right. isn't a new argument that this agreement had been made. Yeltsin mentioned in the letter right. to Clinton in 93. Um, Now, a few years later, uh, there was sort of this uh, uh, friendship pact between NATO and Russia. The NATO-Russia Founding Act was a political agreement that basically said that NATO Mm -hmm. and Russia would not see each other as enemies. Oh, that's nice. Um, So that was what was going on in the 90s between Yeltsin and NATO and the Clinton administration. Then 1999, Yeltsin announced his resignation. He was a drunken buffoon, ineffective. Everyone knew that, being propped up by the Americans. And he turned over power to his protege, Vladimir V for victory, Putin. (laughs) 
Right. And but three years before he steps down and you mentioned part of this uh, in 1996, uh, Poland, the Czech Republic and Hungary are going to be uh, a, become a part of NATO. So, again, those are some some chunks of territory that's just way too close to the Soviet uh, Russian border for them to be comfortable with. So you tell me one thing, you do another. I don't know what to believe. I can't take it anymore. I'm Yeltsin. I'm 300 pounds. I'm drinking like crazy. Uh, it's time for someone else to get uh, in this chair and they might not put up with your shit. As much as I did, I think it was, wasn't it? Wasn't until '99 when those states actually joined NATO. But I think the right, process they, they started the announcement. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But the point is, the Russians know it's coming. Yeltsin knew it was coming. Yeah, and he was fucking pissed about it too. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In '97, a year and a half before his resignation, this um, founding act I mentioned was signed: the mm-hmm. Founding Act on Mutual Relations, Cooperation, and Security between NATO and the Russian Federation. Um, so they don't consider each other as adversaries. They share the goal of overcoming the vestiges of earlier confrontation and competition and of strengthening mutual trust and cooperation. The present act reaffirms the determination of NATO and Russia to give concrete substance to their shared commitment to build a stable, peaceful and undivided Europe, whole and free, to the benefit of all its peoples. NATO and Russia will seek the widest possible cooperation among participating states of the OSCE with the aim of creating in Europe a common space of security and stability without dividing lines or spheres of influence, limiting the sovereignty of any state. Kumbaya. Now compare that it's to the, compare that to the Wolfowitz yeah. doctrine, which said oh, we rule the world. Don't get in our fucking way. Or we'll step on you. Yeah. Metaphorically speaking, of course. Yeah. But then, as we just was mentioning, so by March of 1999, NATO started expanding for the first time. This is eight years after the end of the Soviet Union. And the first three countries that they added, as you said, were the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland. Now, mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate. As we started this thing, we, we talked about the one-inch promise and there's a lot of debate over that. Was it made? Was it not made? If you read a lot of the Western media about it, it'll say, yeah, it didn't really happen. It's all fake, fake news. It's all right. it's all a myth. I've read a lot of stuff in the media over the last week talking about, yeah, the one-inch promise was a myth, never really happened, and if it didn't happen, we didn't mean it, and if we did mean it, we, we, we changed our mind. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of spin about it. But the first right. the first concrete assurances that the West gave to the Russians, still mm. the Soviet Union, um, that there would be no NATO expansion happened in 1990 when they were planning German unification. The US Embassy in Bonn sent a cable to Washington that Germany, in their uh, Hermit Kohl in his meetings with Gorbachev, had been very clear that the changes in Eastern Europe and the German unification process must not lead to an impairment of Soviet security interests. Therefore, NATO should rule out an expansion of its territory towards the east, i.e. moving it closer to the Soviet borders. Very Mm -hmm. clear. Germans said this, agreed with this with Gorbachev, the Americans knew about it. Washington knew about it. Then during discussions from 1993 to 1991, mostly led by U.S. Secretary of State at the time, James Baker. Yes. He promised Gorbachev yeah. that NATO would not move one inch eastwards, is the famous quote. 
the Berlin Wall right. had just come down. Western leaders were were uh, openly discussing the idea of German uh, unification. And mm-hmm. something that Moscow feared was that that would mean NATO bases would be put in East Germany, uh, right. closer to Poland, uh, which was mm-hmm. at the time was still part of the Warsaw Pact. And that was something right. that, that, for good reasons, terrified Moscow. Here's what James yeah. Baker actually said. Uh, NATO is the mechanism for securing the US presence in Europe. If NATO is liquidated, there will be no such mechanism in Europe. We understand that not only for the Soviet Union, but for other European countries as well, it is important to have guarantees that if the United States keeps its presence in Germany within the framework of NATO, not an inch of NATO's present military jurisdiction will spread in an eastern direction. And the Russians said, I can live with that. Go ahead, Germany, you reunite. I can live with that. Now, the thing is, as I said at the outset, this promise was never put into writing because when it got back to President George H.W. Bush, he said, to hell right. with that. God. Yeah. But they never told me. Gorbachev that he said that. And right. the, it just didn't it – it was the spirit of agreement for whatever reason – Never right. turned up in the document. Now, like Gorbachev's position today is that mm-hmm. it was a huge mistake not to get that in writing. He trusted the right. US would uphold the spirit of agreement. Now, remember in our Cold War show, that's the Americans have always criticized Stalin for not, not upholding the spirit of the Alter Agreement in terms of elections right. in Poland and things like that. And he was like, hey, it's not on the it's not on the document. Mm-hmm. We said we'd work it out later. Well, this is what we've worked out. <laughs> um, you know, it, right. it, it was possibly slightly cunning and malicious, you know, according to uh, the recollections of Molotov. He was like, don't worry about it. We'll sort it out later, right. my friend. And I'm not even Greek. That's a West yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> fucking uh, The Wire reference for people who are uh, Wire fans. Um and to then the foreign ministers met to try and work out the nuts and bolts. They couldn't agree on it, so it never happened. Right. And then so the Soviets did what they wanted, and then the Americans got upset, the British got upset. So it's kind of like that. It's payback in this. It's like, well, this yes. is payback for Yalta, right? We didn't put it in writing. Fuck you, Gorbachev. One of the right. reasons why Gorbachev is the most hated man, uh, political leader in um, Russian history, at least modern wow. history. Um, In an interview with Russia Beyond in 2010, Gorbachev was asked why he didn't insist Mm -hmm. on these promises being put into writing. This was his response. The topic of NATO expansion was not discussed at all. It wasn't even brought up in those years. I say this with full responsibility. Not a single Eastern European country raised the issue, not even after the Warsaw Pact ceased to exist in 1991. Western leaders didn't bring it up either. Another issue we brought up was discussed making sure that NATO's military structures would not advance and that additional armed forces from the alliance would not be deployed on the territory of the then GDR, East Germany, after German reunification. Baker's statement mentioned in your question was made in that context. Cole and Genscher, who's the German vice chancellor, talked about it. So Mm -hmm. 2010, Gorbachev said, yeah, it was only about Expansion of NATO missile bases into East Germany. 
Later, in an interview with Bild, a German magazine in 2017, he said, we cannot blame anyone for the dissolution of the Soviet Union. However, many people in the West were secretly rubbing their hands and felt something like a flush of victory, including those who had promised us we will not move one centimetre further east. He said that the decision for the US and its allies to expand NATO in the east was made in 1993. I called this a big mistake from the very beginning. It was definitely a violation of the spirit of the statements and assurances made to us in 1990, he declared. In the latter, he said, however, the West then used Russia's weakness after the dissolution of the Soviet Union to declare itself Mm -hmm. the winner of the Cold War. The principle of equality in international relations was forgotten, and thus we all ended up where we are today. Yeah. I have to tell me what you think about this line of thinking, because this was the very first thing that came to my mind when I read that. Um, We all know, because we've said this a billion times, everybody sees themselves as the good guy, the hero in their own story. No big deal. It's the same thing for nations as well. However, I think what this has taught me, the end of the uh, first phase of the Cold War has taught me, not only do people see themselves as a hero in their own story, but when you genuinely, legitimately see yourself as not only the hero, but you're the good guy and they're the bad guy, do you owe a bad guy honor? Do you have to keep your word to a bad guy? You should be able to justify anything and everything you do to that person because they're the bad guy. You are trying to do something good. This is a Christian nation. We're trying to stop these communist bastards. And so if I lie to them, if I if I say one thing and then I go around and I break my word the next chance and I, and I spread NATO, it's all okay because I'm literally the good guy. They're the bad guy. They deserve what they get. And I do need, and I am justified in doing anything I need to do to win. I mean, I know that's probably an oversimplification, but I think the Americans at the time, because this was a Christian nation going after communism, I literally think they thought, I don't have to honor anything I tell you, you're the bad guy. And I think that mentality is still with us today. But they didn't think Gorbachev was the bad guy. In fact, despite the fact that he's extremely unpopular in Russia, he's beloved in the West, always has been. Because he was the guy that well, it's dissolved. A, yeah, it's a part of our narrative. The USSR yeah, from it's, Western it's, bad yeah. understanding of history. Um, <clears throat> as I point out, he didn't do that intentionally. It was an accident, right? Um, yeah. And uh, Yeltsin wasn't a bad guy. The West loved Yeltsin as well. They, yeah. you know, the Clinton Foundation, well, Clinton, he's, Clinton, not the Clinton Foundation. Clinton. He's the drunk uncle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, wanted to prop up Yeltsin. They loved Yeltsin. They loved Gorbachev. Um, So it's not about you're the bad guy. It's it's about, you know, it gets back to the Wolfowitz doctrine. We rule the world Mm. and we're not letting you. Russia is still a potential threat. Therefore, we cannot let it, um, you know, get access to more power or we have to continue to contain Russia, even though the Cold War is technically over. Yeah. Well, when I was saying what I said, that I, at least I was trying to give it a moral angle, whereas you you seem to be saying America's like, you know what? Cold's over. Cold War is over. We won. We're the only superpower. We're going to do whatever the fuck we want, which I know is true, but like well, you said, that's the Wolfowitz doctrine. That's not me. That's the... Sil- so Wolfowitz yes. doctrine no, 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 says yeah, that. That's yeah, not what well, I say that. 
But it wasn't supposed to it, see the light of it day. It didn't talk about morals and Christians and, and atheists. No, I know. It just I said know. I'm just telling you our the, the American point of view. The Amer- we Again, the we're mythology. always going to see ourselves yeah. as the good guy. Yeah. Exactly. The Christ- exactly. Yeah, the American did you, mythology. Did, and I don't want to jump ahead, so you can go ahead and stop me. Did you read about the uh, 1998 conversation between Thomas Friedman mm, I'll and get George to that. Kennan? Yeah. Yeah, I'll leave it on. Now, of course, U.S. apologists today say they never agreed to anything. Um, It was only about NATO forces not moving into the old East Germany. Now, if you look at a map of NATO's missile bases today, you will see that there is one in East Germany with U.S. Patriot missiles. So even that, they couldn't (laughs) abide by. Yeah. But I want to put out, so I quoted, um, you know, Mearsheimer said that it was a bad idea expanding NATO. Mm -hmm. Um, Sakwa said, has been saying for decades it was a bad idea. These weren't the only people saying it was a bad idea back at the time in the 90s. Former CIA director Robert Gates was very critical. Uh, He said that it was a really bad idea, pressing ahead with expansion of NATO eastward in the 1990s when Gorbachev and others were led to believe that that wouldn't happen. So for the Americans who want to say we never said that, we never promised that, CIA director, former CIA director Robert Gates, he says that they were led to understood, understand it wouldn't happen. And there's no doubt. I think he's a Republican. Yes, there's no doubt that Gorbachev wasn't assured of this in other discussions. It's not just the James Baker, Hermit Cole discussions. As late as March 1991, the British were reassuring Gorbachev that they could not foresee circumstances under which NATO might expand into Eastern and Central Europe. According to the former British ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, mm. Roderick Braithwaite, wrote right, a diary note, March 5, 1991, um, mm-hmm. where he talked about how both the British Foreign Minister, Douglas Hurd, and the British Prime Minister at the time, John Major, had told the Soviets that NATO would not expand eastwards. I've read his diary note, and here's the section from it. He, Gorbachev, professes to be worried that the Czechs, Poles, and Hungarians will join NATO. Major assures him that nothing of the sort will happen. Wow. Who were the first three countries to join NATO seven years later? (laughs) Czech Republic, Poland, Poland, and Hungary. They didn't even wait 10 yeah. years. Within under 10 yeah. years, they had Was already added those. Wouldn't it be better if I'd waited? Oh, fuck it. That was uh, the former British ambassador to the Soviet Union, the last US ambassador to the Soviet Union, Jack Matlock, right. another cool name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written <laughs> a number of good books on Russia and the Cold War, which I've read. He has repeatedly insisted, both in congressional testimony and in the media and in books, that Gorbachev received assurances that if Germany united and stayed in NATO, the borders of NATO would not move eastward, not just not into East Germany, but the borders of NATO. Now, NATO did stay put during the years of George H.W. Bush and the first four years of Clinton but it was in the second mm-hmm. Clinton term yeah. that they added those three countries that I mentioned before. So it was the Democrats that uh, right. that, that did this. Now, in 1998, when this was about to happen, Thomas Friedman yeah. uh, called our old friend George <laughs> F. Kenan Thompson, as you often refer to him. <laughs> 
Right. That's his brother. George Kennan. It was an article um, that came out of the – he spoke to him and turned up into an article called Now a Word from X, of course, referring to George Kennan's famous X article or X memo Mm -hmm. from the late 40s, which basically started the Cold War. Now, it's worth reading the whole thing, so I'm going to. Okay. This is 1998, May 2nd, 1998, by Thomas L. Friedman. It was in Foreign Affairs. I'm reading it. It's in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. His voice is a bit frail now, but the mind, even at 94, is as sharp as ever. So when I reached George Kennan by phone to get his reaction to the Senate's ratification of NATO expansion, it was no surprise to find that the man who was the architect of America's successful containment of the Soviet Union and one of the great American statesmen of the 20th century was ready with an answer. I think it's the beginning of a new Cold War, said Mr. Kennan from his Princeton home. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. This expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn over in their graves. We have signed up to protect a whole series of countries, even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. NATO expansion was simply a lighthearted action by a Senate that has no real interest in foreign affairs. What bothers Mm. me is how superficial and ill-informed the whole Senate debate was, added Mr. Kennan, who was president at the creation of NATO and whose anonymous 1947 article in the journal Foreign Affairs signed X defined America's Cold War containment policy for 40 years. I was particularly bothered by the references to Russia as a country dying to attack Western Europe. Don't people understand? Our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime, and now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime. And Russia's Mm. democracy is as far advanced, if not farther, as any of these countries we've just signed up to defend from Russia, said Mr. Kennan, who joined the State Department in 1926 and was U.S. ambassador to Moscow in 1952. It shows so Mm. little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are, but this is just wrong. He's fucking called it 1998. There's going to be a bad reaction. Then we'll go, see, we told you. (laughs) Which is exactly what we need NATO. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what people are saying today. One only wonders what future historians will say. If we are lucky, they will say that NATO expansion to Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic simply didn't matter because the vacuum it was supposed to fill had already been filled, only the Clinton team couldn't see it. They will say that the forces of globalization integrating Europe, coupled with the new arms control agreements, proved to be so powerful that Russia, despite NATO expansion, moved ahead with democratization and westernization and was gradually drawn into a loosely unified Europe. If we are unlucky, they will say, as Mr. Kennan predicts, that NATO expansion set up a situation in which NATO now has to either expand all the way to Russia's border, triggering a new Cold War, or stop expanding after these three new countries and create a new dividing line through Europe. But there is one thing future historians will surely remark upon, particularly Ray and Cam in their excellent podcasts, and podcasting hasn't even been invented yet, so that's, you know, what a forward thinker I am. It's amazing. Cameron won't invent it for another six years. 
is that the utter poverty of imagination that characterised US foreign policy in the late 1990s. They will note that one of the seminal events of this century took place between 1989 and 1992, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, which had the capability, Mm -hmm. imperial intentions and ideology to truly threaten the entire free world. Thanks to Western resolve and the courage of Russian Democrats, that Soviet empire collapsed without a shot, spawning a democratic Russia, setting free the former Soviet republics and leading to unprecedented arms control agreements with the US. And what was America's response? It was to expand the NATO Cold War alliance against Russia and bring it closer to Russia's borders. Yes, tell your children and your children's children that you lived in the age of Bill Clinton and William Cohen, the age of Madeleine Albright and Sandy Berger, the age of Trent Lott and Joe Lieberman, and you too were present at the creation of the post-Cold War order when these foreign policy titans put their heads together and produced a mouse. We are in the age of midgets. The only good news is that we got here in one piece because there was another age one of great statesmen who had both imagination and courage. As he said goodbye to me on the phone, Mr. Kennan added just one more thing. This has been my life, and it pains me to see it so screwed up in the end. Yes, I can only imagine what's going through his head. You know, he was there at the beginning, and he's like, no, you didn't fucking do, you know, that's not what I say. And now he gets to watch... Cold War 2.0 start up right before eventually, you know, he dies. I mean, what a fucking life. Um, the things that this guy has seen. And he's right. We're going to pay the price because uh, it's going to be a new Cold War. Just different form. In 2002, NATO and Russia agreed to set up a joint consultative council uh, as a okay. way to resolve agreements. Um, seen by most people in Moscow as a bit of a wet document, really. Um, Then two years Mm -hmm. later, NATO underwent the largest expansion in its history, admitting more than seven Eastern European countries. The Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, which had been republics Mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union. Right. Now NATO's members' troops could potentially be located just 625 kilometres from Moscow. In 2007, wow. at the Munich Security Conference, which is sort of an annual gathering of high-level security officials, diplomats, experts, uh, etc., Putin unleashed a broadside against NATO, as well as the United States, accusing the alliance of duplicity and of threatening Russia. He said, I think it is obvious that NATO expansion has no relation with the modernization of the alliance itself or with ensuring security in Europe. On the contrary, It represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. He said that 2007, 15 years ago. What have they done about it? Nothing. Fuck all. Yeah. A year after that speech at the Bucharest summit, as I mentioned before, um, Mm -hmm. they... declined, NATO declined to offer Georgia and Ukraine a fast-track path to membership, but did assure them that they would end up as NATO members. So, Mm. you know, Putin saying this is a provocation and NATO's just pushing ahead and adding countries again right on its border. Four months later, Russia invaded Georgia. 
destroyed its armed forces, occupied a couple of regions, humiliated their president who had been calling for Georgia mm-hmm. to join NATO, Saakashvili. Right. Uh, and then in 2014, as we know, Russia invaded Crimea, uh, mm-hmm. well, s- sort of undercover, uh, they're just soldiers with no logos on. What? We yeah, don't know what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, shortly after the takeover of Crimea, Crimea, Putin gave a speech to Russian parliament saying that they had been humiliated by NATO's mm-hmm. expansion. He said they have lied to us many times, made decisions behind our backs, placed us before an accomplished fact. Yes. yes. So whether you like Putin or trust Russia or not, it's very, mm-hmm. very clear that the US and NATO have been provoking Russia with the expansion of NATO towards the Russian border since pretty right. much the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could, you and I've said this a billion times, but when people look at history, they can't think of a beginning and an end. It doesn't work that way. History keeps going on. So here's Russia under the czars invaded in World War One. After World War One, then the Americans and the British come along and we try to help the whites over the red. So there's another invasion. World War Two comes along. Again, 20 million people die. Some people say high is 27 million. But the point is, it's not over with just because that happened a long time ago, relatively speaking. It's not over. We are still, Russia still sees themselves as threatened by powers in Europe. And we're just perpetuating that. If anything, we're making it official. So the threat to Russia from the West is still current and it's still real and it's still on their mind and you can't poo-poo that. You can't ignore it. To them, it's real. I'm sure they have grandparents who remember horrible things in World War II who can talk some shit. This is not over with. This is a legitimate concern that they have. And if tables were reversed, we would be launching fucking nuclear missiles at somebody at this point. We would be losing our shit. So, Again, you have to consider the other side. If you could treat them with a modicum of respect, maybe we could have worked this thing out. And now there's troops on the border of Ukraine and who knows what's going to happen. I was listening to a guy and I'll just make this real quick. I was listening to a guy on TikTok who's got friends and family in the Ukraine. And who knows if it's true or not, but I tend to I tend to believe it because he was just a kid. But he was like, I talked to my family in the Ukraine. You know what they talk about? They don't talk about being invaded. They talk about putting enough food on the table. Um, they, they talk about crime in the streets and they talk about hopefully not getting COVID. And if you get COVID to hopefully get over it, they're not concerned about Russian troops. It's us in the West who are being with the drum beats. We're, we're constantly being ramped up and worked up and we're told that war is going to come at any day now and we have to do something about it. It's a completely different narrative over there from what I can tell. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Ukrainian president has been saying no, the, the same yeah, thing. There we go. Like the, yeah, like calm the fuck down. Yeah, yeah. Everybody calm the fuck down. <laughs> yeah. So to wrap this thing up, oh, you're nearly two hours mm. long. Let's wrap it up. So. From 1985, when Gorbachev first came to power, through to 2007, after Putin had been in power for seven years, Mm -hmm. there is absolutely nothing that you could point to that the Soviet Union or Russia afterwards did that could have upset the USA and or NATO. As I said before, as George Kennan said, they did nothing. There was, there was nothing threatening to the countries. There was nothing that justified an expansion of NATO. They're working on themselves. Yeah. 
what did they get for that? You know, they agreed. They 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 agreed to the unification of Germany. They they agreed to the Berlin mm-hmm. Wall to come down. They you know they you know right. they they deliberately or not uh, reformed the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, stood by while members of the Union left and went independent and, and became part yeah. of Western economic um, trading Box. agreements, etc. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. did nothing. Russia stood yeah. by for that. 22 years and did what they were supposed to do. They allowed the privatization of everything in Russia. They allowed access to Russia for American companies um, and, mm-hmm. and European countries, you know, to get in and right. trade. Uh, they did everything they were supposed to do. What did they get for that? Nothing. Were they allowed to join NATO? No. Did, did the US stop expansion of NATO? No. Uh, you know, they basically they wanted to join European Union. Yeah. Would they, we wouldn't even let them join the European Union for God's sakes. Sorry. So no, it's fine. They, they they were basically they they sat on the sidelines and did nothing for twenty two years. And what did it get them? Sweet fuck all. Distrust. Exactly. Now. The general mission of NATO changed after the end of the Cold War from, you know, defence against the Soviet Union to a mandate to protect crucial infrastructure of the global energy system, sea lanes, pipelines, giving it sort of global area of operations. Uh, Uh, Technically, that's what its mission mm -hmm. now is. got nothing to do with Russia uh, on paper, but if you talk to... (laughs) Americans yeah. now, it's all yeah. about still Russia generally. But then yeah. the other thing that Americans will say is that NATO's peaceful. Well, is it though? I mean, it's a military organization. Yeah, there was the bombing of Yugoslavia by NATO in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, not condoned by the UN, um, mostly because China uh-huh. and Russia wouldn't agree to it. But it, bottom line is not condoned by the Security Council, but NATO went in and bombed the fuck out of Yugoslavia anyway. And Yugoslavia wasn't a member of NATO, so it wasn't like, well, NATO has to do it because we have this all-for-one-and-one-for-all. It had nothing to do with that. It was just right. we're sending in the army, right? Because we can. Um, now, most people, I'm sure, think that that was a peacekeeping operation, Milosevic and killing the... Albanians and Kosovo and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Terrible stuff was going on. Uh, yes. But according to Clinton's leading negotiator uh, in the to- at the time, uh, that really, it had nothing to do with that. John, a guy right. called John Norris wrote a book in 2005 called Collision Course, NATO, Russia and Kosovo, and the forward to it was written by Strobe Talbot, Full name Nelson Strobridge Talbot the third. Right. If you're gonna if you're gonna talk about yeah. you know European and Russian politics, <laughs> you gotta have a fucked you want up a strobe. name apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I want strobe. He uh, was the deputy secretary <laughs> of state under Clinton, and uh, he wrote that mm-hmm. in this forward. I've got a copy of this book. He wrote, it was Yugoslavia's resistance to the broader trends of political and economic reform, not the plight of Kosovar Albanians, that best explains NATO's war. Milosevic had been a burr in the side of the transatlantic community for so long 
that the United States felt that he would only respond to military pressure. Mm-hmm. We decided on our own to do that? Yeah, and it had nothing to yeah. do with peacekeeping. It was about right. The, right. the violence over there was a justification, according to the Department, the Deputy Secretary of State, he, for the he U.S. to know. get rid of Milosevic. Yeah. He should know. Well, yeah. he was the leading U.S. negotiator during the war too. He was there so, yeah. on the ground. Exactly. So that's NATO. So again, if you're Russia, you're looking at NATO. NATO is being used as a military force to arbitrarily remove uh, people that the U.S. doesn't like. Russians, of course, um, like all people, as I mentioned earlier, feel like you know they have a destiny. They're a great people. They're a great yeah. nation. They're the country of Catherine the Great, and uh, you know uh, Peter the Great, Peter yeah. the Great, Catherine the Great. Uh, Stalin is quite popular there Stalin. these days too. Sure, right? yeah. Just just like the Americans believe of themselves, it's this. It's funny. Chrissy and mm-hmm. I were talking about this the other night. How Americans has have this sense of uh, manifest destiny that they are the greatest yes. people in the world. I mean, we're talking about how Australians don't have that. You know, we we don't think of ourselves no in those terms. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's true. We have a. One of our politicians here in the early 80s coined, or the late 70s, coined the term the lucky country. We think of ourselves as being the lucky country. We're far removed from all of the tensions of Europe and Asia and the Americas, big oceans between us, beautiful country. I mean, if you're one of the indigenous population here, you probably don't feel this way. But for the white people, it's a lucky country. I love it. Very low Not population bad. density. You know the economy's right. going well. We 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 um you know we we enjoy our lifestyle. We have lots of holidays. We have good social mm-hmm. welfare system, free education, free right. healthcare, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We think of ourselves as the lucky country, not the greatest country in the world. And there's a big and difference in the psychology psychology yeah. of a country to, exactly. based on how you think of yourself. But the Russians think of themselves I, as a great nation right. and a great people with a great I history. Can't ha- I can't help. I'm sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to cut you. I can't help but thinking that if you consider yourself the lucky, you're probably very appreciative. Whereas the Americans are very arrogant because it was ordained by white Jesus that we were to lead the world uh, forever and ever. There, there will never ever be if we can have anything to do with it. There will never ever be another superpower but us. Ever. Yeah. We're it. It's ordained by Jesus. Unfortunately, the Ordained. Chinese don't believe in Jesus, so he's, it's not working as right. well. Oh, see, that's yeah. why we're trying to get them on board the Jesus thing. So they, mm. anyway, it's not working. But no, but seriously, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is going to get me in a lot of trouble, but whatever. But I remember early on in the Nazi party, Herman, Herman Gehring says something like, you know what? We never have, you people never have to worry about elections again. For the next thousand years, don't worry about elections. We got this. Hmm. And for America, we're like, you know what? For the rest of you countries who want to be up and comers and you want to try to challenge, don't even waste your time. We are it. And hmm. we will do practically anything to keep this position. Go fuck off. Hmm. I mean, come on. Hmm. We do better than that. Hmm. I'm done. So the Russians think of themselves as a great people with a great history and a great destiny and a great mission, and they feel like that's been lost. Um, You know, a bit like we've talked a lot on some of our shows, uh, including this one, about China after the Opium Wars, 1860, Mm -hmm. et cetera, 
crushed by the British. It's a great country with a fucking great history. Um, Blew Marco Polo's mind when he went there. No one would believe him at what an amazing empire they had. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, didn't get on board the Industrial Revolution fast enough. Britain comes in, crushes them, forces them to take all of Britain's opium. Uh, you know, yeah. and then the Japanese come in, and 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 you know, China has almost a century of being oppressed. Um, they're very yeah. unhappy about that. They come out of it, Mao Zedong. They come out of it in the late forties, and they're like, uh, you know what? We're never going to be oppressed by anybody yeah. ever again. Yeah. Um, they're Fuck trying that. to get back to their position of greatness. The Russians feel the same thing, which is why they're angry at Gorbachev and Yeltsin, as you pointed out, both mm-hmm. very popular in Russia today. I, I, I dug up a number of surveys from 2021 on this, actually. Gorbachev, in both of them, is the most hated man in modern Rome, uh, Russian history. Right. Uh, people yeah. blame him for the post-Soviet economic crisis that led to a dramatic decline in living standards as well as mm-hmm. the, sort of the, the diminution of Moscow's status on the world stage. They're not being taken seriously. By the way, right. uh, in the, both of those polls I read, the most popular man in modern Russian history, guess who it is? Uh, Superman. I'm the Man of Steel. I mean, Stalin. Yeah, he's up there. But actually, it's Yuri, Yuri Gagarin. Oh, really? Yeah. Yuri okay. Gagarin is the hero, right? First man in space. I can see that. Yeah. Stalin, Stalin tends to rank highly too, though. Um, right. Uh, now, after he retired, Strobe Talbot, who I quoted earlier. Right. Uh, Nelson Strobridge Talbot, um, Yugoslavia bombing, et cetera, et cetera. He told the New York Times <clears throat> what he had learned about the conduct of foreign policy. He said, if the leadership of a country has any view but the following, it's not going to be the leadership of that country for very long. And that is, we do what we can in our own interest. Right. And I think he's right. And I think that's the most succinct Mm -hmm. explanation of foreign policy for every country. It's always been, you know, go back to ancient Persia, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. All the way through. Yeah. We do what we can in our own interest. That makes sense. But the question is, who is the our in our interest? Oh. Country is in a solid block of wood, right? right? A country is made up of right. lots of people, lots of companies, mm-hmm. all of which have different interests. Some of those interests are aligned. Right. Some of them are not. Some of them are overlapping. Some yeah. of them are not. So whose interests become our interests when you're – conducting foreign policy, uh, right. whose interests are being looked after? Is it the interests of the uh, uh, elite? Is it the interests of all of the businesses that support the military-industrial complex? Is it mm-hmm. the interests of the taxpayers? Oh, okay, we might get caught up in another 20-year, trillion-dollar war like we did in Afghanistan and Iraq here Right. Uh, where we have to spend trillions of dollars on fighting a war that we then just end up walking away from with a net zero result. Yeah. Uh, that money could have gone into the U.S. economy, could have gone into – well, it did in a way, but it could have gone into building infrastructure and roads. A and now way. didn't. Exactly. Now Biden needs to raise more trillions of dollars to invest in that stuff because it's crumbling. Literally. Um, but yeah. that's true of the United States. It's also true of Russia. 
Um, you know, yeah. they're going to do what they have to do, what they think is in their own best interest. And in Russia's case, it's about mm. security of their borders. Yeah. Ukraine's not in on America's border. Uh, so not it's a close. different set of interests for the United States. Mm-hmm. Bottom line yeah. to wrap up is this. Um, Russia is being surrounded, at least on its western border, by NATO. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know, on its eastern border, it's already got the U.S. bases in uh, Japan, uh, yeah. in Korea. On its western border, it's yeah. got all these NATO Southeast countries. Asia. Yeah. Right. And this isn't being taken seriously by the West. They, they're they blowing it off. Fuck you. Not our problem. Yeah. And Exactly. You know, I recall that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets put missiles off the coast of Florida, one set of missiles off the coast of Florida, to right. try and stop the Americans from trying to invade Cuba again after the Bay of Pigs. Mm-hmm. Right. And the US lost their damn minds and nearly went to war over <laughs> one set of missiles off the coast yes. of the United States. And yet, according to most Americans I've spoken to in the American media and government and commentary that you read, Russia is expected to just sit there quietly and sit on their hands and do nothing while there Take are it. missiles, air, naval, and land forces mm-hmm. surrounding, uh, you know, by enemies, ostensibly enemies, on their board. Yes. Certainly countries that aren't taking their interests into account. Uh, and if you're not taking their interests into account, are by definition, sort of an enemy, right? You're provoking them. Right. Yes. Adversary. Now, the US, I mean, like, on one hand, this is fine. Like, uh, NATO, NATO countries are NATO countries at the end of the day. How or why they become NATO countries is there's a whole other story. But if once they, once they become one, NATO's free, uh, and these countries are free to put forces on their own land, in their own territory, <laughs> behind their own borders, wherever the fuck they want. Right. But so is Russia. Exactly. The world's losing their minds now because Russia's got a hundred something thousand troops inside their own country, inside their own borders. Yes, and everyone's yeah. like, "Oh, they can't do that." And then Russia's like, "Well, how, how do you think we feel?" Like, <laughs> how, how, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You, you can. Put We're doing sh- to you what you want to do to us. What they are so doing to us. You. They are putting yeah. forces on the borders of Russia. Um, right. So the West now feels nervous that Russia's doing, but the West has been doing this to Russia since the end of the Cold War, uh, and everyone's losing their damn mind. So I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Um, I don't think Putin wants war, um, but at the same time he doesn't want the US just installing governments and, and NATO forces on his border either. So right. like, there doesn't seem to be any real democracy going on here, um, the US under Biden just seems to be giving Putin the finger when it comes to mm-hmm. the expansion of NATO. But I hope that couple of hours has given people a bit of a better um, perspective on the history of how we got here 
And mm-hmm. we might do some more episodes moving forwards on on what's actually happening as it goes forwards. But I thought before we can right. do that, we really need to understand the context, the history, which you're not going to get typically from the mainstream media. As I said at the beginning, if they mention NATO expansion at all, they tend to blow it off as it's not a big deal and Putin's lying and it's all a myth. Well, it's not yeah. really. Exactly. Right. Every, every side's got their own story, their own version of the history. This is Ray and Cam. That was the bullshit filter for this month. Get off my fucking back, people. We did a show about stuff. Leave me alone now for at least six weeks.